Welcome to Tulsa Time with Bishop Condorla. My name is Derek Lissy, and I am your host. Bishop, how are you doing this week? I'm doing well. Today we're we're joined by special guest Mary Rice Hassan, who has come to the diocese to do some events for us, and uh, we had the opportunity to just sit and talk with you a little bit today. I'm delighted to be here, and it's sunny. Yeah. This is great. <laughs> Absolutely. It is, it is a gorgeous day. As we film this, it's a gorgeous day. Yeah, what, what we like to call Tulsa winter, you know, 60 in the afternoon and, you know, 30 at night. So, 30 at night. so I'd love to share a bit more about you, Mary, okay, uh, to sure. the group. So Dr. Mary Rice Hassan is the Kate O'Byrne Senior Fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C., where she co-founded and directs the Person and Identity Project, an initiative that educates and equips parents and faith-based institutions to promote the truth about the human person and counter gender ideology. An attorney and policy expert, Mary has been a three-time keynote speaker for the Holy See at the United Nations Commission on the Status of Women mm -hmm. on topics related to women, education, and gender ideology. She serves as a consultant to the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops Committee on Laity, Marriage, Family Life, and Youth. Recently, Mary was honored to receive the Christopher Delis Lechi Award at the 2023 National Catholic Prayer Breakfast. So great, great to great to have you with us. Um, we're yeah. together on the Limfly Committee. Yes, it's, yes, yeah, Limfly. Yeah, right. that's the the acronyms spell Limfly. So. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, that's great. I'm particularly looking forward to speaking with both the parents, but also teachers, mm -hmm. and because I think it's critical when we're talking about these these uh, crucial sure. cultural issues yeah. that we help form our people because yeah. they're they're the ones who are down on the ground and and dealing with this. And that's been my experience of the teachers and the principals is that they're they're interested in they recognize on the one hand that gender ideology itself can cause the same anxiety that it, it sort of feeds off mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. among the children. But for children who are, are suffering from any kind of anxiety, what the teacher wants is to help the child feel better right. and uh, uh, you know, help the family deal with the issues and so forth. But of course, our schools and all of our families are influenced by the culture around us. And so the things the culture says are true and should mm -hmm. be done get picked up and then it's the church sometimes is playing catch up on now, yeah. wait a minute, the mm -hmm. culture doesn't necessarily understand this right. issue right. Right. Yeah, I think one of the things I've found is it's important to encourage parents, teachers, but kids themselves mm -hmm. to ask themselves a couple of questions. What's true? Mm -hmm. What's true? Is what I'm hearing about this, does this make sense? Right. Can I really change sex? Is my body really wrong or could it really be wrong? What's mm -hmm. true? And then to ask another question, okay, well, what's good? Where, what, what is the good in this situation? Mm -hmm. What's good for me as a person? Mm -hmm. And and all of that comes back to the faith, obviously. Right. You know, Jesus Christ is the truth. Yeah. So, um, but if you don't stop and ask those questions, you can easily just uh, your heart goes out to someone. Yeah. And yet you can inadvertently uh, give them the wrong direction yeah. or the wrong solution just because you haven't stopped to ask those questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so. and I wonder if they, if they would consider, so for example, um, you know, let's say a 14-year-old mm -hmm. um, is feeling bad, is feeling anxious, is feeling depressed, is, is feeling like no one loves him or her. Yeah. If they could stop and ask the question, what might be a list of things this could be? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
this mm-hmm. feeling that I'm experiencing because there are you know places on the internet and uh, YouTube influencers and such people who will say, oh no, it's definitely this. Mm-hmm. How do they know that? Right. And right. and meanwhile we have all of our history and all of our common sense to tell us it's not that. Yeah. It might be several other things. Mm-hmm. Let's consider those. Right. Yeah. Right. And I think that is, you've put your finger on something that's critically important. One, they're asking uh, kids to sort of diagnose themselves. Mm-hmm. And when kids are struggling with something, they're unhappy. They don't mm-hmm. like something about their body. Mm-hmm. They're feeling anxious. Uh, today, they go immediately to the Internet, mm-hmm. right? And they or to social media. That's right. In fact, TikTok has emerged as a place where young people are going to sort of self-diagnose themselves with all sorts of mental health issues. Mm-hmm. So they are carrying a burden. I don't feel right. I feel unhappy. I got to figure out what's going on. Right. And the Internet has a very easy solution for them, yeah. or at least it's a narrative. It says, if you feel this, if you're distressed about your identity or distressed about your body, that must be gender dysphoria. You must be trans. And if those things are true, the answer for you is to change your body. And so they take in all of this when they're at a very vulnerable point. Mm -hmm. You know, they are feeling pain. They are feeling stressed. And yet this false answer... Becomes something that begins to feel compelling. Yeah. Mm. And, yeah. And that's where you start to run into trouble because it's easy for them to, uh, or they're encouraged oftentimes in online communities to shut yeah. out anyone who is not going to confirm that narrative. Right. right. Yeah. And that's the usefulness of what uh, you have done with, I, I didn't understand this about the Ethics and Public Policy Institute versus the Catholic Women's Forum. Uh, but I knew somewhere in there the Person Identity Project is rooted, so you might tell us a little about that. Sure, sure. So the Ethics and Public Policy Center is a think tank in Washington, D.C., and I've been there for 11 years, Mm -hmm. and I work on uh, Catholic issues, things related to marriage, family, sexuality, parents' rights, things like that. And uh, we started something called the Catholic Women's Forum. I was working with Helen Alvarez, and we wanted to network solid Catholic women scholars To really be able to exchange ideas, mm. to uh, to speak in support of Catholic teaching mm-hmm. as women. Mm-hmm. So that was what I originally was working on. But then I got a grant that uh, was going to fund some research that I spent about nine months doing. I was looking into coercion mm-hmm. of women through contraception, particularly on a global level. Mm-hmm. And I was really concerned that poor women, for example, were being in India, they, they would have uh, a healthcare worker come and insert IUDs and then ride off into the sunset. And you'd have these women who had no idea really the side effects and, and things. So I was doing a deep dive into the coercion of, of women. Mm-hmm. And in the process, I started looking at gender ideology because, as you can imagine, many of the same players, at least on the global scale, mm-hmm. are involved in both things. It's very much a... Um, a singular agenda, and we're mm. seeing that more and more. But uh, after I spent this nine months looking really deeply into not just the coercion of women on contraception, but gender ideology, I, I sort of came up for air and thought, oh my gosh, as a church, we're not prepared. Yeah. Not because we don't know what the truth is, right. 
but because we haven't been speaking to our people about what's coming down and yeah. how they need to respond, how they should understand this. Yeah. So that's what uh, prompted me to begin the Personal Identity Project. Yeah. And so I think, you know, some of our people know about it because we recommended it at mm. Catechetical Conference or other places as a resource. Uh, many of the priests have heard about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, I consider it, along with the Courage uh, Ministry website, to be really valuable mm-hmm. uh, places of good resources. When we talk about the truth, when we use that term, mm-hmm. the truth, that even to modern ears causes a reaction yeah. because it sounds like some kind of fundamentalist something or other. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's, it's simply a way of saying there is a a, histor- a um, human history long mm-hmm. uh, process of thinking about these issues that have to do with human anthropology, who we are as male and female, mm-hmm. who we are as a species, who we are as spiritual beings. Uh, all of that uh, can't be simply tossed in a bin somewhere and then we start from 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. This mm-hmm. is all we know about uh, humans, right. male and female. Uh, and so we're simply saying, no, we've got, we've got a long history of yeah. thought about this that counters what started 20, 30 years mm-hmm. ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not counters it in some political sense, mm-hmm. but counters it in simply saying, when you assert that a person can change their sex, the assertion is simply incorrect. Right. And here's the reasons why. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And one of the neat things is that you know, Catholicism is a, a religion of faith and reason, mm-hmm. right? And you can look at science. And science, except more recently we've seen some corruption of science, mm-hmm. which is a, a separate problem. But you can see the, uh, the deep commitment to the truth that we're created male and female. Mm-hmm. And in fact, one of the advances in women's health was when, when uh, physicians and, and scientists started realizing that Women's bodies are different, uh-huh. and our heart attack symptoms might be different. Mm-hmm. How medicines affect our bodies might be different, right. and they started differentiating. In fact, the NIH put out a, um, a requirement about six or seven years ago requiring scientists to specifically list the sex of their clinical subjects, whether it was animal or, or human. Mm-hmm. Why? Because it made a difference because our bodies are different. Right. And so it's not a question of which one's better. No, it's just acknowledging sure. yep. that distinction, the difference in saying, great, let's take that into account. This gives us so much more knowledge. And sure. uh, so it's it's really interesting to see that the truth that we know from Revelation, you know, mm-hmm. created male and female, to see science has has come to that mm-hmm. anyway, yeah. and and so we're not we're not throwing aside the science. Those who would who would say that you can self define an identity just by your feelings, regardless of the body, that's uh, yeah, that's, that doesn't seem to be rooted in science. So. Well, you know, I think there is a way in which I can understand what they're saying when when uh, uh, someone who is into gender ideology says something like that. They're, they can say, I'm proposing a world in which you could. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's fine. You can propose such a world, but everyone doesn't have to, to join you in that mm-hmm. world. It's a private, subjective world that you're proposing. Um, but you're proposing it, and policymakers want to propose it as something everyone has to accept. Yeah. That's where the problems begin. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it, it then becomes coercion. Again, just yeah. what you started with, coercion. Yeah. yeah, and you know, I often think of high school plays, right? People go on stage and they assume sure. a character and they're playing yep. a role. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, that's fine. If people want to do that in real life, they say, no, I feel more comfortable mm -hmm. you know, asserting this sort of identity or occupying this role in society. Mm -hmm. Well, that's one thing. But just as we wouldn't compel someone who's in the audience to come up on stage and, and play a role in that mm -hmm. narrative that we've constructed, mm -hmm. we even more so shouldn't be using the law or the power of government right. to try to coerce others to yeah. be part of someone else's kind of inner narrative. Yeah. So when I think of the, the Person Identity Project website, that's the way I think of yeah. it, but you're the person who's created it. So from your perspective, what, how would you describe what it is? Yeah, so our project really was was designed um, because I had that moment, you know, oh my gosh, the church is unprepared, to help the church, to equip the church, but also to equip parents and mm -hmm. professionals. Mm -hmm. And so we do that in, in a number of ways. Mm -hmm. Certainly the website, there's right. a lot of resources. We're not trying to reinvent the wheel. There are, there are a lot of good things put out by National Catholic Bioethics Center. Courage has resources, other right. good Catholic um, entities. So, you know, we link to those, refer to those, but we also have created new resources based on our experience of looking at this both from a policy angle, mm -hmm. but also speaking now with hundreds of families that have gone through this, where they've had a loved one begin to struggle with this or identify mm -hmm. um, in a way that's at odds with the reality of their body. And so for the past really six, seven, eight years, we've been immersed very much on, on a uh, practical day-to-day -day level following mm -hmm. what, what helps, what hurts. Mm -hmm. What are our policy initiatives that require certain things? Are they helpful or harmful? Right. What about the medicine? So those are some of the things that we try to um, offer resources on the website, but then also going to dioceses and speaking about it. We've done a lot of um, presentations and workshops for presbyterates, mm -hmm. you know, all the priests in a diocese or uh, all the teachers in a diocese, things like that. Why? Because people who are entrusted with, right. you know, sharing the faith, but also helping to accompany others need to be confident right. that they understand where the church is on this yeah. and that the church's response is really truly loving. Yeah. That is what mm -hmm. is compassionate. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's a, that's a key component. Uh, you know, one of the areas on the website is diocesan policies mm -hmm. and, uh, so dioceses and school systems and the like have had to wrestle with, well, you know, how do we work with people who are dealing with this, our families who are dealing yeah. with this? And so to try to get ahead of an ad hoc response, you know, which would be a disaster, right. and to have a more uniform response, you create these kinds of policies. And I know that uh, the bishops are concerned that the people in the in the school offices and in the classrooms and so forth, in the RE programs and so forth, that they're both wanting and desiring to love and surround and accompany and help mm -hmm. people who are struggling with this, but they also have uh, accurate information and they have knowledge of, in this diocese, this is the approach that we take. Mm -hmm. So I think that's why those, those uh, policies are so useful. It allows people to say, okay, I know what to do. Mm -hmm. If I encounter someone who's struggling with these issues, I know what to do to try to help them. Um, it won't always. Sometimes people are going to say, 
my way or the highway. You mm-hmm. know, you, you right. accept what I tell you about myself, or it means you don't love me, and therefore mm-hmm. I'm going to walk away. We never close the door. Mm-hmm. You know, from mm-hmm. our side, yeah. we never close the door. Uh, if someone closes the door on us, then we're mm-hmm. waiting there, right. hoping it'll right. open. But uh, we're not going to close the door. Yeah, I think that's an important point about accompaniment because mm-hmm. oftentimes people, for example, in a school um, and admissions office will say, well, we had a family come to us. They have uh, a male child, you know, a biological boy, and he's been identifying as a girl. He wants to enroll in the school as a girl, use the girls' restrooms, et cetera. Why can't we do that? Mm-hmm. And, and yet... Once you once you sort of validate the lie, you're not only validating that lie for that child, but for every other student mm-hmm. who sees you sort of acquiescing and acknowledging and treating this boy as if he's a girl. But a lot of sc- times people, in, in the goodness of their hearts, they say, but wait a minute, if, if I say no, he can't enroll as a girl, mm-hmm. I'm not accompanying, I'm not available, I'm mm-hmm. not loving this person. And so we try to encourage people, one, to have a broader view of accompaniment, right. just because you say, you know what? In our school, we uh, we stand in the tradition of the of the church, and we relate to everyone in light of the truth of who they are. Male or female is created by God. We're happy to have you, but we will relate to you as as a male. You're given mm-hmm. sex, and if the person chooses not to do that, it doesn't mean, as you say, that we close the door. Mm-hmm. It means we look for ways to invite right. them into further conversation, yeah. and to say, how can we help you? Let's continue the conversation, and and making recommendations. Perhaps the only therapist they've talked to. Have been people who right. have a one-track uh, agenda, really, right. in terms of pushing this. So accompaniment is looking at the person, saying, "How can I help them?" Right. But it, it's not necessarily saying, "Okay, whatever they need right now, just because I want to keep them in the door." It's like, no, we ha- we can continue that relationship as long as they're open, but sure. perhaps not in this forum. I think of the the scene in the gospel where Jesus is approached by the young rich man who says, what do I have to do to be perfect? And Jesus outlines for him, this is what you would have to do, and he goes away sad. But to me, the, the, the climax is that Jesus lets him go away sad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, we know that Jesus desires his heart. Yeah. And I like to think that when that young man heard of the resurrection, he did give away everything and he became his disciple. I yeah. think that. Um, we know that Jesus w- desires his heart. He's not trying to harm him, mm-hmm. but he can't say otherwise because otherwise would simply not be true. He would right. be leading this young man into something that was false, and then that would be harmful to him as well. There is a parallel. I know of situations where, for example, uh, an older teen or a college-aged young person said, no, I'm, I'm rejecting my, my given sex and I'm, I'm going to identify in this other way, non-binary or, or mm-hmm. the opposite sex. And family members who have said, look, I love you, I'm here for you, but I can't support something that I know is going to be harmful. Mm-hmm. I can't participate in and say things I don't believe are true. Mm-hmm. But if you do that with charity, I know of cases where down the road, that very same young person is starting to realize maybe all of these medical interventions have broken my body instead of giving right. me what mm-hmm. I was looking for. Right. Maybe I made a mistake. And the person they come to is not someone who is cheerleading them yeah. along the way. Why? Because 
it's it's too awkward. There, that person, especially if it's parents who have invested and paid for things or whatever, they come to the person they know loves them, yeah. but was willing to love them enough to tell them the truth. Yeah. And so I think that's an encouragement to remember. I think there are many people out there, Mary, who are struggling. I think mm-hmm. that there, are, you know, I know I know folks who who have been dealing with this and things like that. What is your advice to parents, family members, friends? Who are working, you know, you mentioned accompaniment, mm-hmm. and I think that some of you had some really strong points there. But how does one work well to sort of, you know, present truth, but also present love in that relationship? Yeah, so it's variable depending on the age of the person, the relationship, et cetera. In other words, if you have a 12 year old son or daughter who begins to struggle with this. You can mm-hmm. be much more directive, whereas if it's your niece who's 24, who's on her own sure. and is doing things, your your ability to influence the situation is a little bit different. But in all cases, we say lead with love. Whatever mm-hmm. the person is, has shared with you, let them know you love them. Mm-hmm. And like Christ, we love them unconditionally. Mm-hmm. But we love them so much We're not going to support something that we know is harmful. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I don't know about you, but you know, I've in our area we've had a number of families who've dealt with young people who've um, been addicted to various substances. Mm. You know, and parents in that situation oftentimes face the same thing. Mm. They have a young person who believes that what they're doing is really good. It empowers them. They feel great, whatever it Mm. might be. Mm -hmm. And yet the parents oftentimes have to be willing to say, look, you know, I love you, Mm -hmm. but I'm not giving you any more money because I know where it's going to go. I'm here to help you if you want to go to rehab or whatever it might be. And that's a hard thing to do, but, but we do it in other aspects of parenting. Mm -hmm. I think one of the pressures on parents today is that now we get a label right? If you don't support this, you must be a bigot. bigot. You must be a transphobe. Mm-hmm. And so that adds this, this additional layer mm-hmm. right. where you all of a sudden feel constrained because particularly if you've got a situation where some people in the family are, are mm-hmm. all of a sudden on board then right. you're, you're the bad, mean, religious fanatic or, or transphobe or whatever, you know, the labels come out yeah. and that's intimidating. Yeah. That's intimidating. And I think we have to be unfailingly kind yeah. but be consistent in terms of the truth and yeah. wanting what's really good for the person. Mm. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's where I think I see a crossover between what in my mind are two different sides of the same issue. One is the real thing, the real person who's standing in front mm-hmm. of me who really is in some kind of anxiety or pain, yeah. who really does want to talk to me and want uh, assistance and, and uh, support. Uh, and there are things I can do and things I can't do with that person. And then the other is the cultural slash political, uh, which wants to march in parades and carry signs and make labels as a means of coercion. Mm-hmm. We want people to accept this as being true and real and it's going to be okay and everyone should accept it. And those things then end up getting crossed Mm -hmm. because someone who's simply caring for someone then begins to adopt the labels Mm -hmm. and the coercion and the 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 demanding that we Mm -hmm. change our mind and these Mm -hmm. kinds of things and that's heartbreaking for families Mm -hmm. i I, what you describe is what many parents have gone through where all of a sudden this this young person whom they love and they've said look i love you but 
I can't, I'm, I'm not going to make the appointment for you to get testosterone or whatever it might be. All of a sudden, the, the child is coming out and calling them names and, and distancing mm-hmm. themselves. And oftentimes, um, we know just from different investigative reports that have been done, there is an element within the uh, activist community that's mm-hmm. online and, and I think really exploits vulnerable young people, mm-hmm. tells them that if your family does not mm-hmm. support you doing this, then go no contact. Right. There are influencers on TikTok who will say, go no contact. In yeah, other yeah. words, cut your family off. Mm-hmm. We'll be your family. We'll be your glitter family, et cetera. And that's, again, it's heartbreaking mm-hmm. when you see that happen. But I, I think you're wise to, to point out that we have to remember the individual in front of us who's hurting, mm-hmm. but yet distinguish about what's happening in the political realm and, and in the activist realm, uh, which it, it's interesting looking, having followed this now for a while. In the activist realm, they don't like to talk very much about, quote, gender dysphoria, this mm. distress over your identity or body. Sure. They talk about being able to just know who you are, and I identify as transgender or non-binary, and I have a civil right, a human right, to do so. Mm-hmm. In other words, mm-hmm. I don't have to be distressed. I don't have to say anything except I, I, this is who I know myself to be, mm-hmm. and I get to declare it, mm-hmm. and I get to coerce everyone else mm-hmm. into using the names I've chosen yeah. or performing the, um, the surgery that right. I desire, right. et cetera. So it's, it's two different things, you know, the hurting person sure. and then the movement that is trying to say, this is an autonomy, right? Yeah, this yeah. Is- I was at the, the NCBC hmm. workshop for bishops just last week. Oh, okay. And uh, of course, this has been a topic at those workshops for the last couple of them, yeah. and now we're looking at the, the ethical and religious directives, mm. and a constant um, a constant area of the ethical and religious directives in maintaining them is the interplay between Catholic hospitals, for example, mm. and the funding sources, for example, Medicare, Medicaid, and the rule writing agencies yeah. of the government. So it's not so much that your senator mm-hmm. or your president themselves is forcing mm-hmm. something on you, but simply the person who's in charge of this part of the of the agency can write yeah. a new rule and if you don't catch it, then next year when you re up for receiving Medicaid payments or whatever, suddenly you find that you're subject to this. So right. yeah, that's the coercive side of it. Yeah, it's an economic arm twisting, mm-hmm. and and it's unjust because yeah. particularly Catholic hospitals, just like Catholic schools, we stand in our mission and our identity. We have religious freedom mm-hmm. to be faithful to that, and yet when things like that come down administratively, for example, Title IX, or you have the the uh, HHS regs that are mm-hmm. trying to force doctors or hospitals to perform these or engage in in these uh, transitions. I, then what you have is a, a healthcare institution that's faced with saying, "All right, am I going to sue, or uh, you know, what what am I going to do?" Right. And so, even if you're going to win down the line in the Supreme Court, which you will, yes, there's a whole lot of space between here yeah. and there, yeah. and oh a whole lot of things that happen. Yes. You still have so, to go there, yeah, 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 absolutely. What are some of the greatest challenges on the horizon in this area? I think. You know, a lot of us, we, you know, we've kind of been in this space of sort of mm-hmm. understanding it, looking for pastoral approaches, some of those things. What are some of the things that you see as somebody who is 
sort of on the front lines yeah. and sort of working in this in this area all the time. Yeah, I, I'd say three things: the corruption of language, mm-hmm. the corruption of science, and then the denial of parents' rights. Mm. So all of those things are are tremendously important and, and have a much broader impact even beyond you know the individual person or or the individual regulation. So the corruption of science. Um, I'll give you an example of something that that really troubles me. The NIH, National Institutes of Health, mm-hmm. has had a, a longstanding definition of sex, sexual difference, acknowledging that that there are only two sexes. Mm-hmm. Uh, we categorize based on the design of the body that to make either large gametes or small gametes, and then then the the chromosomes enter into that as well. They've had a longstanding definition that was just replaced was replaced by a, uh, a group, and, and they supposedly didn't have compulsory power, but all of a sudden what they do, because mm-hmm. it involved a lot of uh, different departments in NIH, it's now becoming the standard. And they're redefining sex to be uh, the cluster of attributes that you have, your hormones, your, your genitals, your this, your that, mm-hmm. which immediately confuses things. If mm-hmm. you have, let's say, a male who starts taking female hormones, mm-hmm. well, right. now what is he? Right. Could he call himself legitimately a female well if you change the definition of sex then all of a sudden everything's muddy so the the importance of using accurate language Mm -hmm. and not giving into that i think is is critically important using accurate language but also being aware of how science unfortunately is being corrupted there's another aspect of that that there's been a number of really brave um researchers who are not by and large not people of faith Uh but they're they're people of integrity and they're researchers or or clinicians who have now begun to speak out about how it's so hard to get their research published. Mm. They do research that shows a result that's at odds with the narrative and nobody wants to publish it. There is, in in fact, um, a study finally did get published by a, uh, a researcher who who looked at and did a, a review of the impact of puberty block blockers on the brain, mm-hmm. which you would think, if you were going to introduce this novel intervention, you know, suppressing puberty in a healthy child, you mm-hmm. would think that would be one of the first things you would want to be measuring. How yeah. does this affect the kids' brain? Sure, it's kind yeah. of important, right? IQ, their yeah, right. everything. And yet it was something that Dutch researchers identified initially and then didn't pursue. And so we've had now 20 years of this not being investigated or minimally investigated. So this researcher said, well, I'm going to look at what there is, both animal and, and human studies. And, and what she found was disturbing drops in IQ, uh, just you know, legitimate clinical evidence of harm to the brain from using puberty suppression. Mm-hmm. But it flies against the narrative mm-hmm. that suppressing puberty is fully reversible, mm-hmm. no harm done. Right. And so it took her an inordinate amount of time and going back and forth with editors to be able to even get this review in print. And she wasn't taking any political position, right? right? right. right. So uh, it's encouraging to me to see scientists, just people of integrity, mm-hmm. speaking up and saying, hey, we can't do this. This this is going to harm science in general, yes. not not just on this issue. Sure. Uh, so so that I think is a critical thing to keep mm-hmm. our eyes on. And then the use of language, mm-hmm. and and this is where you know I, as you probably know just in giving presentations, one of the things I try to emphasize to people is use correct language. If we're talking about male female sexual difference, we are talking about sex. Gender now has 
has been corrupted in mm-hmm. terms of meaning to mean your self-defined identity. Mm-hmm. And same thing with a phrase like sex assigned to birth. Mm-hmm. What's the implicit premise there? Sure. That we're not really male or female. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. just an arbitrary designation. Right. You know, so when we use that language, we're implicitly validating that premise. So right. things like that. Um, and then the third thing I mentioned was just the, uh, the really aggressive effort to cut parents out of their children's lives on matters. We saw this initially with contraception and abortion, but now we're seeing it in terms of mental health Mm -hmm. and in terms of this whole area of identity confusion or distress Mm -hmm. where uh, there are some states that want to define you as abusive if you say... No, Johnny, you are born a male. You are a male. I'm. I'm not going to put you on estrogen. Mm-hmm. You're only twelve. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever. That that is going to be abusive, or yeah. they'll call CPS. And and we know of people who've lost yeah. custody of their children because of that. Yeah. So mm. that's that's an insidious evil yeah. that is kind of snowballing. Yeah, and it's 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 part of the sadness, I guess, of the whole thing. I mean, we're, yeah. we, we should all grieve together for people who are struggling with this because these things that you're talking about are critically important uh, aspects of this whole issue to deal with, of gender mm-hmm. ideology, the, the, the uh, deleterious effects it's having on society and culture generally. And yet, we we have to always make that distinction between those things and this poor person that I'm talking to who's crying because they're yeah. just really distraught over what's going on with them. But it can be so hard to keep them, to keep them separated out. Sure. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, when in the presence of the person who's struggling, I guess we want to focus on the person. Mm-hmm. We know all of this in mm-hmm. the background, but that's not the motivation in this moment. Right. When we're, you know, testifying before Congress or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, writing letters to the editor. Does anyone do that anymore? Or something <laughs> <Yeah>. like that. <laughs> you do public comments to the government. Yeah. <laughs> uh, whatever we do in its place, mm-hmm. then we're dealing with these larger mm-hmm. uh, aspects of it. You know, we see now these um, more and more reports of detransitioning people mm-hmm. suing medical institutions because they weren't given adequate information about what this was going to do to them. Um, that, you know, is a hopeful, a hopeful sign only because something needs to, to help more and more people see this is not real. Yeah. And because it's not real and we're trying to approach it as if it's real, including with the medicine, with the medical treatment, we're hurting people, we're harming people yeah. for the sake of an ideology. Yeah, and the testimony of detransitioners has been a game changer mm-hmm. because they're mm. real live people. Yeah. You know, many of them who are who are now coming forward and speaking, for example, to legislatures or the media, are are still teenagers, mm-hmm. and they're talking about exactly what they were thinking. Yes, they were struggling. They were in pain. Mm-hmm. They hated their body. They were convinced that they should have been born the opposite sex or whatever it is, and so they 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 bought into. The promise, mm-hmm. right? And that's I right. think that's something important to remember. Gender ideology is a promise that never delivers, mm-hmm. right? It's a promise that you can somehow not be your given sex, mm-hmm. male or female, and you can create yourself anew mm-hmm. and everything will be better. But it's a promise that never delivers. And these these young people went through pain, suffering, 
until finally something, sometimes for some of them, um, they began to realize this was all a terrible decision, a terrible mistake, mm-hmm. because they got therapy to deal with whatever the underlying issue was. Mm-hmm. Others just saw their bodies begin to break down and thought, I can't keep doing this. Right. But for almost all of them, in hindsight, they look back and they say, nobody told me. Mm-hmm. They were not told the truth mm-hmm. about the fact that your body, being male or female, is immutable. You cannot change it. Mm-hmm. They were not told, in many respects, the consequences to fertility, the consequences to to their bodily organs, how one thing snowballs into another. Mm -hmm. You go on testosterone, chances are you're going to get a a double mastectomy just Mm -hmm. because your distress increases, because you're getting whiskers and you still have breasts. And, you know, so those things now we have studies on, but they're not part of the discussion. So I think that that has been eye-opening a lot of people kind of naturally assumed what we would hope is that doctors who are doing such serious interventions, well, of course, they're laying everything out for these young people and their families. Right. Surely they're making informed decisions. And right. it turns out not to be the case. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mary, you're going to be here in Tulsa for a few days uh, mm-hmm. doing some work. And I know you'll be at uh, the parish hall at Church of St. Benedict this evening from right. 7 to 10 um, and I think you'll be doing our teacher in service as well, yeah. from what I understand. So what are your goals for your time in Tulsa? You know, when you come, you know, we, we've obviously invited you here, but, you know, just uh, what are your goals for your time here? And, and, and what do you hope that folks get out of uh, what you have to offer? Well, you know what? I love going to different dioceses and just talking to people mm-hmm. because even though I'm dealing with a, a topic that it has so much pain around it, mm-hmm. it is tremendously inspiring to meet people who have sure. strong faith, who are trying to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And I see that across the country in diocese after diocese. There are so many good people, so many good families yeah. really trying to love God, to raise their children well. Mm-hmm. So I like talking to people just just to, to get that flavor of mm-hmm. the place. But my hope is that what I can do is... It, is give people some information mm-hmm. because depending on where you're getting your facts, you may have facts which are politically convenient but but not scientifically supported. Right. Um, and then give them give them hope that mm-hmm. there is a solution, there is something better on the other side. I, Catholic teaching is good news, mm-hmm. right? The truth sure. about who we are is good news. Right. So helping people realize, yes, that's really how you love someone. So mm-hmm. let's deliver it with love. Let's let's support it with facts or therapy or all the other practical things. Mm-hmm. But let's not be afraid to yeah. give people the truth because we have to have that confidence that really is going to lead them uh, to what's good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Mary, hearing you speak on all of this is really inspiring. Um, where does your passion come from? You know, your own story, mm. you know, maybe a bit more. I know you mentioned it earlier yeah. a little bit on how you got into this, but could you share a little bit more sure. about that? Yeah, I grew up in a um, strong Catholic family in the Midwest. And my dad was uh, one of the original constitutional lawyers dealing with uh, the abortion issue, mm. first in New York when the laws in New York were liberalized way back in the 60s and then uh, after Roe v. Wade. So I grew up in a household where uh, it, my dad was a law professor, but his his passion was, was serving the church, bringing truth into the public square. Mm. And my mom at the same point, I was one of 10 um, mm-hmm. in our family, uh, she, she was as engaged in the issues, but she had sort of a personal apostle. She would talk to the guy who was repairing the car. She would talk to <laughs> nice. the, the teller in the, <laughs> in the, uh, in the bank and, and, and just 
she she genuinely had a gift for understanding and, and getting people to open up and then giving them something to think about and always being being fr- not not condemning or, or whatever but just um, sometimes provocative but uh-huh. but she had relationships <laughs> with these people and so I saw it from both ends you know mm-hmm. the the um, the need to to uh, treat people as people and and really care about what's going on in their lives, but then mm-hmm. also how important it is for us as Catholics to really uh, step up and and shape the culture mm-hmm. and to push back when there are things that are, are going on and um, we have to be involved. We sure. can't just hide because mm-hmm. it it's going to come for our families sooner right. or later. We live in the world. That's right. So. Yeah, we can't escape it. For those out there who want resources or want to check into some of the work mm-hmm. that you've done sure. or uh, want to be a part of that, your mom, by the way, sounds like a fantastic lady. <laughs> she um, but uh, where can people go? Where can they find your stuff yeah. and kind of hear more about what you're up to? Yeah, personandidentity.com. Personandidentity.com. Uh, our website okay. where you can just Google Person and Identity Project and you'll find Simple lots enough. of resources yeah. and. Um, you can always reach out by email too. Yeah. So. Well, that's great. Yeah. Well, uh, we just want to give our sincere gratitude to you for yes. coming to visit us and uh, to spend some time with with folks in the diocese, yeah. especially our teachers as well. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any final messages you'd love to share with listeners or any information? Um, I just want to say I'm, I'm grateful to Bishop Condola for his work, for his pastoral letter mm-hmm. uh, on this issue, but really with just such a, a wonderful concern and care for the people that, that you're uh, shepherding. Mm-hmm. And that, that too is a source of hope. So mm-hmm. I, I hope people feel blessed by that. Yeah, absolutely. Good. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thank you're you. welcome. Well, this has been Tulsa Time with Bishop Condorla. My name's Derek Lissy. We hope you have a blessed rest of your week.